Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Highway Community Podcast for Sunday, May 1st, 2022. Some of my favorite memories growing up revolve around family vacations that we took in the Mojave Desert. I had an uncle named Fred who grew up in a really small desert town called Trona. And in the 1930s, his father was a part owner and manager of the Ruth Mine, a gold mine that was located about 20 minutes out of town in Homewood Canyon. And when I was young, my uncle held the claims to this mine, which had been abandoned since 1942 when the Roosevelt administration shut down all non-essential mining that was not related to the war effort. And my uncle had fixed up one of the old buildings in what had essentially become a ghost town into a cabin. And we used to go there for vacation. Now, it certainly wasn't Hawaii or the Maldives or the south of France, but as a kid, The mine was the place that I would have picked to go 11 times out of 10. There was just this incredible beauty to the landscape, despite the fact that it was so arid and desolate, uh, that there were mountains that that towered around us on all sides, a dried up riverbed of of fine white sand, oddly enough, that that I used to hike in, that was home to, among other things, the rusted-out remains of a 1930s model car that had crashed there some years before. And then there was also all of the wildlife. Jackrabbits and cottontails. Rattlesnakes. Uh, the, the unmistakable honking sound from the burrows, which were former mine employees before being released into the wild, uh, echoing through the canyons. And there was even the occasional spotting of a mountain lion or a coyote on a distant ridge. And one of the many things that I, that I learned to do and loved to do at the mine was to ride the all-terrain vehicles. And when I was about 10 years old, my uncle bought a Honda ATC 110, which I really liked to ride because it had three wheels. Because let's just say, you know, I did not and, and do not have the personality of a daredevil. So riding a two-wheel dirt bike was a little scary for me at age 10, and and full disclosure, still is. Uh, But the three-wheel version was much more palatable. Of course, side note, uh, the great irony uh, that we would learn through experience was that those three-wheel motorcycles were actually much more dangerous than two-wheel dirt bikes because... You know, if you got going up a steep incline and, and for whatever reason you either lost momentum or the engine stalled, the motorcycle would start rolling backwards and roll right over on top of you. I guess that goes to show that sometimes things are much more dangerous than they might appear to be. Well, one of my favorite places uh, to ride the ATC was up to what we called the Lower Springs which was a natural spring that was just nestled on a hillside in the middle of the arid desert. It was probably a little bit less than a two-mile ride, but it sure seemed a lot farther to me as a 10-year-old. But the destination was always unmistakable, because as you'd look up the canyon, you'd see the small cluster of greenery 
contrasted against the dry desert landscape. And as you get closer, that green area would become more defined. There were sprawling trees with branches and, and leaves moving and rustling in the breeze that, no matter how scorching the desert sun happened to be, always seemed to be blowing in a way that cooled things off. There were, there were lush bushes that were unlike anything else on the landscape. And, and then some of the wildlife that I mentioned earlier, in particular the rabbits and the burrows, along with lots of birds, would often be there as well and would scatter away as I'd ride up. And when I'd turn off the motorcycle, I could hear the gentle sound of water flowing. And that water was responsible not only for all of the plant life that was there, it was also what, what, what both attracted and gave life to the animals that were there. Well, that power that, that water has to transform and, and to bring life is actually a seminal image that, that recurs all throughout the story of Scripture. And as we seek to extend the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, you know, as we seek to extend the celebration of God's transformational work of bringing life from death, this morning, uh, we are beginning a new teaching series entitled Water of Life, where, where we're going to be tracing this theme through the scriptures. And the first place that we find it, actually, is in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, we see there in those first two verses of Genesis 1 that water is, is central to the pre-creation state of the formless and empty earth, as, as darkness, Genesis tells us, was over the surface of the deep. And the Hebrew word that is translated for us as the deep is an interesting one. It means deep places, the depths, the deep sea. And it can also refer to an abyss, and, and even more particularly, an abyss in the sense of a grave. And that, that kind of water that's being described, that water that is vast and uncontained and uncontrolled, was a common symbol of chaos in the ancient world. And so Genesis very noticeably begins with the chaos of these deep, dark waters. And yet, in the very midst of that, we see in verse 2 of Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God was present there. The Spirit of God was present in the midst of the chaos of the formless and empty. And I want to just pause there for a moment just to call out the really important, really foundational truth that we see here at the very beginning of Scripture, and that is that God is present in the chaos. God is present in the chaos. 
And that is something that I know, at least for me, has been so important to hold on to over the past couple of years. And, and something that I think is so important for us to continue to hold on to. Right? That truth that, that in the midst of the chaos of an ever-changing global pandemic, and in the midst of the chaos of war, in the midst of the chaos of racial tension, in the midst of the chaos of political divisiveness, and, and in the midst of our own personal chaos, what, whatever it is that that might look like, the Spirit of God is present. God is present in the chaos. And not only was, was the Spirit of God present in the chaos, we also see here in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God transforms the chaos as well. Listen again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, as innocuous as this might seem, as we look at our English translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that last word of verse 2, the word waters, is actually very significant. And that's because it's a different Hebrew word from the one that is translated as the deep. The Hebrew word is mahim, there at the end of verse 2, and it's a word that's used to describe an ocean, a sea, a lake, or any great collection of water. But what's even more significant about mahim is that it doesn't carry the negative connotations of the deep. Right? These are not the dark, deep, wild waters of chaos, they're distinctly different. And so from the very outset of the creation narrative, these first two verses of Genesis, we see God beginning his work of bringing order and chaos through his presence. And as the creation narrative progresses, you know, one of the things that we see God do repeatedly as he brings order and function to the formless and empty is the work of separating and naming. Right? God separates and names in the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1. And in verse 6 of Genesis 1, we see him do that with the waters. Genesis chapter 1 verse 6 says that God made the rakia, which the NIV translates as a vault. He creates a vault in order to separate the water above from the water below. And the function of that vault is to regulate the weather. And God names it the sky. And then in verse 9, we read that God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And so here again, we see God bringing further function and order to the waters as he gathers them into seas. Verses 10 through 12 describe how God brought the elements together to provide for vegetation and agriculture, with the description focusing on how God made it so that plants bear seeds and those seeds grow into new plants. And so as God brings order to the waters, the waters bring life. They bring life in the form of plants and vegetation and trees that bear fruit. And then listen to verse 20 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And so we see there that in addition to bringing life to the land in the form of plants and vegetation, the seas themselves are are teeming with living creatures. Now, we noted earlier that water was a common symbol of chaos in the world of the ancient Near East. And, and according to the literature and the cosmologies of the people of the ancient Near East, those waters of chaos were, were teeming with creatures of a different sort. They were believed to be teeming with monsters. And so it's significant here that, that as God brings order and function to the chaos of the watery darkness, that, that his waters are teeming with creatures of life. They're teeming with creatures of life that God blesses and says are good. And so Genesis 1 gives us this really profound picture of the total transformation of the waters. As God brings order and function from the chaos of the deep, from that order and function comes life. Well, as the story continues in Genesis 2, we see that water continues to be a prominent theme. Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 says that streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And God planted a garden in the east, Genesis 2 says, called Eden. And he made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And God created Adam, the human, and he created woman, and he put them in the garden to partner with him in caring for and maintaining the sacred space of creation. And then Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 says that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden and from there it separated into four headwaters, four rivers that flowed out from Eden and into the surrounding land. Now, in the middle of the garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God's only instruction 
for Adam and the woman was that they not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as the story unfolds, Adam and the woman succumbed to the temptation to eat from the tree. They disobeyed God and acted independently of his wisdom. And their sin fundamentally fractured their relationship with God and their relationship with one another and their relationship with their own selves. But the ultimate consequence of their choice was that they were sent out from the garden. They were sent out east of Eden, where the new normal of life would fundamentally involve struggle. The the ongoing struggle between good and evil, the struggle with the entire process of bearing children from conception to birth, and the struggle to procure food, all of which were consequences of becoming independent. And as they are are cast out into the wilderness, and the story of Scripture continues, and, and God initiates his mission of restoring his relationship with humankind, we continue to see his presence, and we continue to see him bringing life through those waters that were flowing out of Eden. And over the next five weeks, uh, we're going to trace this theme of water, and particularly what happens in, through, and around wells, springs, and rivers, and explore together how God reveals himself and, and, and explore together the life that he brings through these waters. And so we'll look together at the story of Hagar, who encounters God at a well in in the literal and figurative wilderness of her life uh, on two different occasions and experiences the water of justice. We'll look at a story from the life of Isaac, who was told by God to remain in the land of the Philistines during a famine, and his experience of the water of abundance as God provided well after well after well to care for him. We'll look at Ezekiel's vision of a life-giving river flowing from the temple uh, that that very much harkens back to the rivers flowing from Eden and, and the renewal that flows from that water. And then our series will culminate with the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, which is such a beautiful and rich picture of the way that Jesus came to bring water for everyone by restoring God's presence, healing shame, and reconciling broken relationships. As we embark on this series together, I'm reminded of the images that are at the beginning of the 23rd Psalm. Psalm chapter 23 begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And I love that image of the Lord leading us beside the quiet waters and refreshing our soul because that is so much the work 
of the water of life. And so my prayer for us, uh, both for each of us as individuals and for us as a church community as well, and as we journey together over the next few weeks, is that God would be leading us to the life-giving waters of his presence. That, that we would experience him bringing order to the chaos, whatever it is that that looks like. That we would experience his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his generosity in abundance, and that his waters would refresh us and grow us and, and deepen our rootedness to the presence of his spirit in us and with us. Would you pray with me? And as we close this morning, I want to give you just a moment to sit with those words from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And I want to invite you just to imagine the Lord, your shepherd, leading you beside quiet waters. And as you do that, where would you like to experience the water of life? Where would you like to experience the water of life? Where would you like to experience transformation or renewal? Where would you like to experience God bringing order to the chaos? Or maybe even more simply, where would you like to experience God's presence in the midst of the chaos? Where would you like to experience the water of life? Father, we thank you this morning for your abundant goodness to us and for the way that your presence and your life flow so generously to us from the waters from Eden. Thank you for your presence with us in the midst of the chaos of our lives and our world. And thank you, Father, for all of the ways that you are bringing order to that chaos. Would you give us eyes to see the life-giving waters of your presence 
around us. May you attune us to your spirit. And may we experience, God, the transforming power of your water of life. In Jesus' name, amen.